Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. So we talk a lot about A-B testing, but I think there's some complexity that we often don't address. You don't say. Yeah, we what do you think about it. talking about it? Yeah, let's do that. You're listening to Linear Digressions. Well, so there's a lot of things that we could talk about with complexity in experiments, but the one that we wanted to talk about in this episode is network effects. Network effects. Yes. So you used to work at Facebook, I know, which is one of the more famous networks out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but let me use Facebook as an example to introduce the problem here. So let's suppose that you, when you were working at Facebook, you were working on some new feature that um, was designed to, when people uh, had that feature in their feed like the goal was to have them like visiting Facebook more often. Like maybe it's a, uh, I'm going to use an example from some of the, one of the papers I was reading this weekend to research for this episode. Let's suppose that it's a, it's a new search algorithm that's supposed to give you a feed that's better tuned to the stuff that you want to read and that you're going to like, and that you're going to share and all this stuff. So you get a better feed. And the question is, is it actually better? Like, does it drive your engagement numbers higher or whatnot. And so let's suppose that we run a very simple A-B test and you get randomized into the A experiment, which gets the new algorithm. And I get randomized into the B bucket, which does not get the new algorithm, but you and I are friends. And so we are, there's a, 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 no, a line in the Facebook graph that connects us to each other. And so you start interacting with Facebook a whole lot more and you're sharing a whole bunch of stuff and you're liking a whole bunch of stuff because you got this great new algorithm. I like, see where this is going. What's that going to do to my feed, right? Or what's that going to do to my engagement numbers, right? It means you see more, maybe you see more Ben in your feed because I'm more active. Exactly. So there's this feature here that is either has some kind of impact that propagates out to other people in the network, or maybe it's a feature that explicitly involves people interacting with each other. Like maybe it's a, a chat feature and you will literally never use it if you and I aren't both on it because we have to be able to chat with somebody else. And that means we're both on it together. These kinds of right. things, right? Yeah. So the very simple, just half the people in bucket A, half the people in bucket B, randomize it and let that sort it all out. That doesn't work very nicely when you have network effects. And so that's what we are talking about today. Yeah. And actually, let me give you uh, a couple of other examples of that, Great. which are even even more, um, I guess the effects are even more blaring. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So very commonly, this is not just Facebook, obviously, and and obviously all of my views are my own and all of that, but like um, very commonly at uh, tech companies and in general, actually, and anyone who can manage it, if you have a new thing that you've developed, you want to test it out, right? You want to make sure that it works. I can say that launching a new feature to millions of users or tens or hundreds of millions of users or a billion users, there's a lot of anxiety there because even if the amount of code that you've changed is fairly small, if there's a bug that could that, that could uh, surface for 
a very small percentage of your users, that still might be a million people. And you really don't want to make a million people sad by crashing their Facebook or whatever. So you do some experimentation. Maybe you launch to a smaller group of people or something like that. But what if your feature is, uh, let's go back in time here, before Facebook had newsfeed, what if your feature is newsfeed? Then you've got you know, 75% of your users using the old thing, which was just, I think, I don't even remember what, what there was before newsfeed, but then you've got 25% of people who have this new thing. So you're going to have people inter interacting differently with the platform, and that's going to affect other people who are not seeing the new treatment. But also you're going to get press coverage, you know, and, and you're going to get people talking about this new thing that 75% of the people are not seeing you're going to be over at your friend's house and you're going to be looking over the shoulder as they post something and you're going to wonder like what the heck is going on with with them and their facebook or or their their service so there are so many different network effects especially around the launch of new features the launch of things that look visually distinct uh website redesigns for example it's just it's just really it seems really simple on the face of it to make an A-B test, but the reality of it is that it's very, very difficult to isolate those things and, and to understand whether there are network effects and if so, in what way are they skewing the people who were supposed to be the control group and unaffected by your, by your A-B test. Yeah, and I mean, to some extent, when you're thinking about this as a launch, there's even ways that companies I know were like, down a rabbit hole right now, but yeah. we'll we'll come back up for air in a second. It reminds me, you know, there's some ways that companies can even take advantage of that to drum up like publicity and stuff. Like, remember when a couple of years ago Twitter went from 140 characters to 280, but they only rolled it out across like the cool people first, and so there are all these people yeah. who could do like the long tweets and they were puffing their chests out a little bit. I wasn't anyway. one of the cool people, <laughs> nor was I. Uh, but anyway, so in terms of like nerd speak here, uh, this is most relevant for, so as you said, there's all kinds of things that get tricky when you're just in your generic product launching mode and debugging. But in particular, we're thinking about the case when you're doing causal inference on some kind of trying to figure out if the change that you've made is causing some kind of outcome to be different than it would be otherwise, which is, has a lot of the same DNA, but maybe is a little bit different in practice sometimes. Anyway, yeah. in nerd speak, if we are now doing the uh, living in the Rubin causal model framework, which is usually what we're talking about when we're talking about doing uh, causal inference on like A-B test type things, there is an assumption in that whole framework, the whole idea that we're going to use a randomized control trial to understand causality. And that assumption is, it's an acronym usually that you'll hear about. It's SUTFA. Um, where Sutfa. that S sounds like a curse word. <laughs> no, it doesn't. You think so? I, yeah, well, I just, I, I just thought, like, wait, what did you call me? So, <laughs> um, I called you a S U T V A stable V A V A uh, stable unit treatment value assumption. And okay, I don't think that this is very evocative of what the idea actually is. The idea actually is that someone else's treatment assignment has no effect on anyone else. So I, as someone who is in this experiment, kind of live in a little bubble, and I don't have any way of having my outcome 
changed in any way whatsoever by anybody else's assignment, either to the treatment bucket or to the control bucket. So that that's what Sattva is talking about, is that idea? Yeah, so it's making, it's that Sattva assumption is built into kind of the the framework of most causal inference when you're doing a, a randomized control trial. But as most people who deal with causal inference and experiments and stuff in practice, they know that sattva can oftentimes not be strictly true. Um, and so part of what, in some cases, you are trying to do when you're running these experiments is understand and uh, take into account those network effects. And there's ways that you can do this. So all is not lost. We'll talk about this in just a second. But um, just wanted to make sure that we signposted here that this is actually a pretty important assumption in like the A-B testing framework, paradigm, whatever you like to call it. But it's something that in the real world can be anything from approximately true or mostly true, if you're yeah. uh, pretty fortunate, to um, completely uh, missing the point whatsoever <laughs> of yeah. some of these things that you're trying to study. Yeah, interesting. In in my world, I can say that sattva is almost never guaranteed to be true. That sounds about right. I mean, I almost used to work never. in I used to work in particle physics, right? And so we were smashing particle beams into each other. There's barring any kind of like fishiness on like of the quantum entanglement level, which is probably mostly not an issue. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you'd think that independently and identically distributed data is, you know, there's there's no place where you can find better examples of that than in particle physics. But even us, we had to think about what collisions were happening, like immediately before, especially the, the collisions we were studying, because they could change the response in the detector if there was like a proton that just shot through your detector cell and a second oh, proton shoots through it, then you might get like a slightly different electrical response out. And so it usually wasn't like that big of a deal, but yeah, it's, it's actually, if you think about most cases very, very carefully, it's pretty hard to think of things that are truly, truly have no, no uh, connection with each other whatsoever. Yeah. I do sometimes wish that we could fork the universe and, uh, do a true A-B test. It would be interesting. But yeah, sadly. Sadly, probably never going to happen. At least nope. not in our lifetimes. Not outside of Black Mirror. Oh, so... don't get me started on that, though. <laughs> okay. So let's, <laughs> um, so let's talk about another example here that I think is super important and really highlights this yeah. and calls to mind a really good paper that I was uh, reading to prepare for this episode. So yeah. vaccines. Oh, interesting. Yes. So when you think of like the flu vaccine, how do you think? So the general premise is you get the flu vaccine and then uh, you probably won't get the flu or your, you know, your likelihood of getting the flu will be much lower than yeah. if you hadn't gotten the flu vaccine. In any case, you know, yeah. your likelihood of getting it is still relatively low, but comparatively speaking, much lower. How do you think it does that? How do vaccines work? How, how do vaccines work? Yeah. Well, it... I vaccines kind of rely on the network effect, right? Like the the I guess the big picture goal of vaccines is you want to decrease the population's susceptibility, not necessarily any one individual, 
but you decrease the population's susceptibility by decreasing most of the individual's susceptibility. And if you do, if you lower that susceptibility enough, then um, the diseases that you're trying to vaccinate against are not able to propagate in a way where they grow. They only propagate in a way where they eventually die out. Yeah. So I think this is a really interesting and subtle point. And I don't know, at least for me, I didn't really know this until fairly recently that, yeah, you're right. So to some extent, vaccines work because I, you or I or whatever, get some of the deactivated virus and then it prompts an immune response. And then we have those like antibodies. And if we get exposed to it again, then our body can mount a response quicker than if it had never seen them before. And so we're more resistant to to catching it. So it's like, oh, okay, this just all happening kind of inside my own immune system in response to this vaccination that I got. Right. It's not a guarantee that you won't get it. No, no. But it, it does decrease the likelihood. But right. the point that you made is what I didn't totally appreciate until much more recently, but is really important and valuable, is especially with these contagious diseases, a huge amount of the advantage that we get from vaccines is not because of my individual response to it. It's the response of me and all of the other people who also have it. And that depending on you know whether 20% versus 80% of the population around me is vaccinated, that can actually have a huge impact on whether I get sick or not, regardless of whether I can have the vaccine, I cannot have the vaccine. Um, so let me let me unpack this a little bit because I feel like I'm I'm getting ahead of myself slightly. We'll have a link to the the paper that I'm referring to, this vaccines paper, and then it also covers an example that has to do with um, housing loans and how housing loans there's network effects in how people buy and sell houses and how loans get allocated for houses, and so that gets covered there too. So two wow. two examples that aren't just about you know red button blue button new feed old feed. So here's here's the thing that we're trying to disentangle. We know that there's a really strong network effect. We still want to understand if vaccines cause resistance to, let's say, cholera, I think was the example that they used. So I'm interested in understanding, in, in factoring my causal analysis into two pieces. I want to understand how much of my resistance to cholera, let's use the flu. I don't remember if it was cholera or the flu, and I want to I don't know if there is a cholera vaccine is the thing that's killing me right now. So let's say it's the <laughs> flu, because I'm 100% sure that there's a, a flu vaccine. And I also know that the flu is very contagious. So there's some amount of what they call direct effects. So now we're, we're talking about kind of technical terms here. There's the direct effect, which is how much of a um, decrease in likelihood of catching the flu do I have because of just my immune system? What is the indirect effect, which is all of the other people around me however many of them there are, because maybe it's 20%, maybe it's 80%, but like, you know, what is that indirect effect on my likelihood of getting the flu, all the people around me? And then there's, there's a couple more notions. And, and now let's talk about the randomization here for just a second. So it can be randomized. If I want to understand direct effects, then you can randomize whether I get the flu or, not, or the vaccine or not. So you just randomly put me into bucket A or bucket B, like a regular AB test. But then if you want to understand the indirect effects, you need to have a second layer of experimentation or kind of like randomization. So you have to have uh, randomization on the group level. So let's suppose we have 
we actually do have a group that's 20% vaccinated. We have another group that's 80% vaccinated. So the total effect is comparing the um, my probability of getting the flu if I am vaccinated and I am in the 80% vaccinated group. So I'm like the most protected I could be mm-hmm. versus if I am unvaccinated in the 20% vaccinated group. So I am the most unprotected I could be. What's the difference between those two outcomes? So that's like a third outcome that you can quantify between those two worlds that I could live in. And then last is this notion of overall effects, which is if I were chosen at random, so like the average person in the vaccinated group versus the average person in the unvaccinated group. So that this isn't a person who like actually exists. It's just kind of like the averages for those two groups, comparing those against each other, because that's sort of a different type of outcome that you could measure. So there's the point is a few things here. Number one, we have to do randomization now at the individual level and at the group level in mm-hmm. order to understand these two different level these two different types of effects that we could be having. And then we also need to think about different ways of presenting the results that we get so that we think about what are the different cases that we want to compare. And so that gives you a a simple framework for starting to understand how to tease out network effects. That seems like a lot of work to do. (laughs) I mean, yeah, but but that's why people like Sutbus so much (laughs) that you can, you you don't have to do all this work, but like, you know, with the, the world is the way it is and network effects are a real thing. So, um, if you, if you don't do this stuff in the wrong, uh, situation, then you end up with answers that are wrong, which is not great. But it's so much easier to just plug your ears and, and la, 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 la. Uh, yeah, that's not what scientists is. That's not what science is about. That, yeah, that is very true. Um, I also feel that although it's not statistics related directly, I I feel like it's important to also mention that there are some people who cannot be vaccinated and there are some people who are immunocompromised. So like immunocompromised people, uh, elderly people and young children or babies who can't get the vaccine, they have only the network effects to rely uh, upon. So if you have a population that's not particularly vaccinated, and you get the vaccine, you're going to be kind of protected, but the baby is not going to be at all. And and that's why it almost becomes, I, I would actually argue it becomes an ethical question whether or not you get vaccinated in certain situations. Yeah, um, and this paper, like I should add as an aside, like this wasn't a, just a theoretical result that these folks were coming up with. They were actually studying some real data from um, different, I think it was like some different villages that had different vaccination rates. And so they could actually study these things and they, you know, they did the hard math and it's way better <laughs> for yeah. you. Like you think, you know, am I unvaccinated in a, in a high vaccine town or am I vaccinated but in a low vaccine town? It's way better to have the, um, the group immunity in this particular, this particular case that they studied than just your own individual immunity. So yeah, it's so much, like I said, this is a thing I, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't totally understand about vaccines until pretty recently, but it's so much about being part of the network, contributing to those network effects more so than even your own, whether you get sick or not. Yeah. So um, get your flu one, shots, kids. Yeah, definitely. And just while we're on this topic, one way to visualize it that maybe makes it a little bit easier to understand is if you imagine a football stadium 
and you start packing people onto the field within the bounds of the field. No one's on the stands. All of the people who are on the field packed together, really pretty tightly packed together, are unvaccinated people, we'll say, for the sake of this metaphor. And then you put someone who's really sick, who's coughing and sneezing and everything, right in the middle of the gr that group of people. Is the virus going to spread or is the virus going to be unable to spread? It's probably going to spread like wildfire, right? As you vaccinate people, let's imagine those people move into the stands. Uh, maybe they move uh, into the stands that are that are closer to the field, and then they start kind of populating back. And eventually, if you get 90% of the people vaccinated, you've got these people evenly distributed across this much larger area. And um, the 10% of people are also very widely or very um, far apart on their football field because there are fewer it's basically harder for a virus to spread now because people are further apart. Uh, so now you put the hacking, coughing, sick person in the middle of the field, and maybe, maybe their germs might get very lucky and they happen to be caught on an updraft and they, they end up landing in someone's nasal cavities and they infect that person, right? But that person's probably not going to infect every uh, anyone else because everyone's so far apart. So that's kind of a way of visually or more viscerally understanding the effects of vaccinating a population versus vaccinating, you know, maybe one person uh, who gets to move a little bit further away. But, you know, if you have a whole bunch of people on the field who are coughing and hacking, even if you're further away from it, you're still likely to get sick. Yeah. And one thing I don't actually know that much about, but I think I'm sure there's epidemiologists who study this, is that I bet that there's kind of a a turn on curve of sorts. And I, I bet it's, you know, this some kind of function of like how contagious the disease is and what percentage of the population already has it and how long you're contagious you know, when you have the disease. Like, are you just contagious for like a day or two or are you contagious for forever for some diseases, right? And studying how that turn on curve then operates for different assumptions about the population and the and the disease in particular. Because you can imagine if you're like the 99th percentile and everybody already has vaccines, like whether you get one or not isn't going to change things that much. Right. Um, likewise, yeah. if you're like the only person who's vaccinated or, you know, there's one other person in town, like that's not going to do that much. But somewhere in the middle, but who knows if it's at like 20% or 50% or 80%, you know, I think that's the stuff of of epidemiological studies, but somewhere in the middle, it's going to be a lot steeper than that. Um, and I think that that's why, anyway, this is not a political podcast yeah. and we're not going to so, make it one, but like, that's why yeah, when definitely. people start to not get vaccinated, it can seem like it's not that big of a deal for a while because the herd immunity is still pretty yeah. robust, but then it can start to degrade quite quickly. I would imagine suddenly perhaps, but again, I'm not an expert. Uh, anywho, yeah. To pull it back, um, if you are, we talk about A-B tests a lot. So again, a lot of that is just assuming that you have, you know, you have the, the sattva assumption in place that whether you get treated has no impact on what happens for me and vice versa. But in the real world, it is usually a little more complicated than that. And so check out, we'll have a couple um couple really good pieces I came across uh, researching for this. Like I said, the example with the the vaccinations. And then there's also a paper that one of our listeners pointed me toward that was from some folks at LinkedIn 
who are looking at this for more of a social networking case. And of course, if you're working with this kind of stuff, probably something that you'll want to read up on at some point. So yeah, super interesting and important stuff. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.